We're back. We are back. Live Battle in the studio. Preach is back. Live in the studio. I'm Brian. I'm joined in person by the great Paul Rizkala, uh, pioneer of philosophy, master of the mystic arts, connoisseur of all things. <laughs> I was waiting for another C word. Connoisseur of all things. What are you a connoisseur of, Paul? Crappy philosophy. Crappy philosophy. You just have a collection. It's like you look at your library. It's a collection of books of the worst philosophers ever. Crackers, we, crackers. Crackers. We just we, finished off actually, a whole. <laughs> okay, we do have a show. Thank you for listening. We're going to get to some of the good content. It's been a little bit of a hiatus. But, uh, Paul, who is, before we start, I, I'm, I'm a little curious. Who do you think is the worst philosopher of all time? I'm going to bite my tongue and not say who I initially thought I was going to say. Who? Something that'll probably get me canceled. The Apostle Paul, you heretic. Brian Zhang. Nah, nah, nah. Okay, give give us your real. Uh, what do you mean by worst? Maybe this. Who is a philosopher that has a really, people love a lot, Uh huh. but you Ooh. think they're overrated? Maybe like Slavoj Zizek. Oh, we all know about him. <laughs> you know the guy who's like, he's he debated Jordan Peterson a couple years ago. I have heard his he's name. He's like the Eastern European. I'm, I'm trying to act like our audience who doesn't listen to the Everybody obscure. knows who Slavoj Zizek is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jordan Peterson, there we go. Have you ever seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine? No. Uh, actually, yes. Okay, well, the, no. the chief, uh, Lieutenant Holt, he's like this, this highbrow. No, 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 it's it's the chief, guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and he's like this highbrow guy who's always like, you know, oh, you haven't heard the concerto in C minor by whatever. He always just like says these things. That's what you just did. You were like, haven't you heard of his blah, 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 Fine, fine. Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. He's not a philosopher, but he's got a following and he's totally overrated. And it's a bloody mess. It's like, <laughs> man, it's like all these guys. It's like Jung said that that there's the archetype. And, and, and then if you aim at something, man, maybe a little bit each day you, you clean your room and, and then it's a little cleaner and and, and then it gets better and, and boy after a while you you start to get better and and it's not happening it's not happening that's so good <laughs> it's not even like a like a characterization or a mischaracter that's like perfectly peterson i had these visions of doom and i i thought to myself you you have to seek the highest good which is okay and it's not a joke it's not a joke <laughs> It sounds so good, and at bottom, it's like substanceless. There's nothing in there. Oh, don't say that. He's got nothing. Don't He's say that. nothing. He is nothing. Well, speaking of another overrated philosopher, we're doing a series on C.S. Lewis. <laughs> That's messed up. On his, <laughs> that is messed up, man. On his book, Miracles. No, he's not overrated. Although, I mean, would you consider C.S. Lewis to be a philosopher? Uh, oh, here's the elitism coming we, through. Our last he episode. He's not a philosopher. <laughs> He's a children's book writer. I'm not going to do uh, the Aries Spears impersonation. <laughs> we don't listen to Aries Spears. No, you're right. You're I don't right. even know who that is. You're right. So uh, We just did an episode on why C.S. Lewis was wrong. I know. And so, uh, it was clickbait, and we are unapologetic about it. That's right. Obviously, we think C.S. Lewis is great. Why would we devote a podcast to it when we could be out doing so many other things? Right? Like what? Like, like polishing off a, a thing of stale crackers, yeah, right. <laughs> dipping them in buffalo. He just sauce. ate some stale crackers here at the office. Lots of exciting stuff. But I mean, you Those know, the most you know, stale doing, crackers. I mean, I you and had. I, we're we're young guys. You know, You're late twenties, early thirties. Mm -hmm. we, we we can go out into town. You know, go check out the bars. Go club hopping. 
<laughs> you know, watch check out the, the local disco tech. Watch the YouTubes. Watch the YouTubes. We still got it. We're Instead, still- we're here drinking sparkling water, talking about Lewis. You drink sparkling water. I got my classic. You're right. Classic water. But uh, we're, we're going to dive back into this. And uh, really, our goal for looking at the book uh, Miracles by C.S. Lewis is to kind of unearth some of the really interesting thoughts that C.S. Lewis has surrounding the idea of the supernatural. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things you learn as you read miracles is a lot of the the, the stuff today, you know, uh, materialistic views or um, or materialism. I guess I always think of materialism just like you really like money, but, but we're, there's we're, that too, right? But just sort of the you know the the, the atheistic, uh, increasing non-religious population of our country of students on campus and all these kinds of things. Um, a lot of it sounds so profound, but really it's just rehashed stuff from it's just Jordan Peterson, the forties and fifties and sixties. Well, I mean, Peterson is not a Christian. So, I mean, there you go, but I do act as though God exists. <laughs> um, but Lewis is dealing with a lot of these issues um, and answering skeptics and, and trying to make a rational defense of the faith. And we owe a great debt to him because I think, he, he's done a he's he's a very winsome writer and really when you look at miracles you start to see that his goal is to not just to win an argument but to win people hmm. and i think he does that on a lot of his nonfiction, arguably his fiction too in a different way but lewis always has in mind that he's dealing with somebody who's a, who's a complex mishmash of biography and philosophy and you know uh, life uh, situations and, and all these kinds of things. And so I think he's very aware of that and it comes through in his writing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we did have a little bit of critique about some of his ideas and, and we're going to look at chapter four. Yeah. And we're actually going to buzz through a couple chapters, you know, but um, four and five probably mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see how we do. But four and five, he he's building on or really he's finishing an argument that he started from the beginning of the book. That's right. So you want to sketch out just for the our listeners out there who mm-hmm. don't know how to read or <laughs> haven't read this. That's also uh, messed up. Right. Um, talk to them about what is Lewis's argument so far. And, and also why it's important. Like why do why should we care about this? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, he's trying to again in the first few chapters not deal directly with the question of miracles, like we said. But he's doing this ground-clearing, stage-setting project where he wants to show that there is something intervening in nature. There is something supernatural. And the evidence of that, first, he says, is reason. And then in this next section, he says morality so he's, is he, another something that, that... It's an indication that we're not alone in this Who's he world. taking aim at? He's taking aim at people who say that there's nothing beyond... Space, time, matter, and energy. Right. That's the only thing that exists. That's the view that he calls naturalism. You ever see like uh, these movies that are? I remember there, there, there's some like young, there's like young adult fiction movies about like Twilight. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That was that was really quick, Paul. Um, <laughs> like young couples, like The Fault in Our Stars, or uh-huh. different yes. movies. Perks being a wallflower. It's sort of, it's almost like this coming of age story, but incredibly nihilistic. Nihilistic. Hmm. Um, sort of it, it, like we're all sort of doomed or, or life doesn't really have that much meaning besides what you make of it or we're all broke you know 
broken up and messed up. And, yeah. and I mean, there's some truth to that, but, but there's this interesting genre of stuff like that. And, and I feel like underneath it is this idea that we kind of all know that there's nothing beyond this life. And we kind of all know that the world spins, the universe goes about its business and doesn't care at all what happens in our lives. And the mm -hmm. most we can do is find these sort of brief glimpses of transcendence, brief glimpses of joy, whether through sex or mm -hmm. self-discovery or I don't even know. And uh, underneath it, so so it's it's sort of like a modern, when you erase the idea of the supernatural, and I don't mean supernatural like spooky stuff, like mm -hmm. ghosts and all that stuff, but, but that that the world isn't a, a closed system, I guess, or it's not, a, it's not mm -hmm. just, it's, uh, there is something beyond nature. Um, You've literally just summed up 20th century existentialism in four sentences using a reference from the fault in our stars. That's pretty that's impressive. That's what I do. That's what you do. Yeah, that's why with that, I'll <laughs> preach signing off. No, but the, the, yeah. there's a lot of that. And it's no wonder why people focus so much on the experiential because in some sense it's all we have it's all all we have is what we feel because we know we're on this ship heading towards darkness kind of thing like it's just an endless void that sounds terrifying it is but um and i think lewis is taking aim at, at sort of the 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 undergirding idea of like well why are we so quick to think that naturalism believing that there's no, there's nothing beyond the physical realm. Mm -hmm. Why are we so quick to view that as the obvious thing to believe? Right. It doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And it, it just, it, just, it does seem like it's like, oh, you believe in Santa Claus or tooth fairy, like you believe in God or Jesus. And it's sort of this idea of like, haven't you grown out of that? Once you come into come, come of age, you realize that again, it's just, you know, there's nothing. It's just a nihilistic sort of sort of everything. It's just the material world and we're all heading towards our death. And the best we can do is try to make some kind of splash while we're here for I however mean, brief moment we're at. Part of it, though, is due to the success of science. And look at when Lewis, look at when Lewis is writing in the mid 20th century. You've got people coming out of the Second World War. You've got nuclear power. You've got all these forms of novel telecommunications and I think one interesting sociological story you can tell is that the world is becoming increasingly technologized. People see how effective science is, and science is the thing that tells us about the material world. And so now that we've got this really effective tool in the scientific method that literally can produce lasers, and not quite when Lewis was alive, but eventually put men on the moon... That's a really allegedly thing. allegedly put a man on the moon. <laughs> Don't say that. We're going to get canceled <laughs> for all the wrong reasons. Um, but yeah, you can totally see why, like what we call the modern mind, is prone to naturalism when you've got the scientific worldview being so successful. And the Christian worldview is to say, look, these two things are compatible. Ultimately, that's that's the answer we want to go for. But if you're just looking at sort of like an unsophisticated scientific picture of the world that says, look, look at how uh, impressive science has been to us. It's not ridiculous to come away from that going like, yeah, naturalism might be correct. Well, it is a sense of of, of hubris. hubris. Oh, good, hubris. good Latin word. You know, I mean, I'm just like, it does feel, you often hear people say things like, what? maybe you've heard this in your field with philosophy. 
Paul, why do you think, why are you thinking about what the word is means? Why, what do you mean being or like think, you know, pontificating about all these different abstract concepts? You're not like curing cancer. You're not like solving, you know, problems in, 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 uh, in, in the economy or figuring out how to create, uh, different kinds of, of businesses or I mean, it's just mm -hmm. very practically oriented. Like what's the use of thinking about the, the end of what a human being ought to be mm -hmm. or, or even abstracting these things because we just want like, man, just what's the practical utility? Mm -hmm. what, how can we make a profit? How can we increase comfort? How can we fix our problems? Mm -hmm. And, uh, we have no patience for the kind of deep reflection on the nature of existence and who we are that Lewis has because we don't find it to be relevant to our lives because our world has been so shaped by technology that we don't almost have a need for that. I wonder if part of it too is a lot of those deep philosophical questions that Lewis is pointing at that you see in a lot of his works all depend upon an awareness of your mortality. When you start to consider your death, then questions about meaning and purpose mm -hmm. and existence start to creep in. And you see that when people look towards the end of their life, when they become grandparents and they start thinking about the future, and when they start thinking about their legacy, there's this haunting sort of shadow that's cast upon your life. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it shows not only as our society, you know, with, with technology, which I think technology by and large is a good thing, mm -hmm. but there can be a pride that comes with it a sense of immortality that removes the catalyst, the pushing, the pressure of these existential questions on us that we need to think about. And also it's our obsession with youth. Mm -hmm. We sort of put people who are aging off to the side and we focus upon looking young, being young, thinking young, the young are the innovators, all these things. And what I love about Lewis is he's very much an old thinker kind of thing. He's very much about books. Retrieving the past. Retrieving the past. Yeah. Waiting for, you know, he even says you should, this is a paraphrase, but, you know, re read old books yep. that have mm -hmm. stood the test of time. And uh, I know we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but I, I think it, it, it locks into what he talks about here when he talks about uh, nature, when he talks about our assumptions about it. And uh, he, he sort of, you know, he, 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 he basically, I, I said, it seems like his main argument is this. You need to have something beyond nature to account for things like morality, because mm -hmm. morality, those aren't like love is not a physical materialistic phenomenon. Neither is justice. Mm -hmm. So for those things to be real, you have to have something outside of this natural world. Mm -hmm. is, is that a fair assessment of what he's saying? That's a, in, in, in loose terms. Yes. Okay. In more precise terms, we can get into that, but get into it. Ultimately, he's trying to show that when we look at our conscience, the thing that tells us whether things are right and wrong, like there's two explanations we can give. We can give a scientific, biological, psychological, sociological explanation and say, well, we, are, we were evolved to think this way. We were conditioned by society to think this way culturally. And so our conscience that tells us do not murder, do not steal, do not do things like that. This is just a kind of conditioning. And it, it's not really latching on to reality in any sort of meaningful way. And so Lewis thinks this is the naturalist's option. You have to go this way. Um, he cites Freud. He cites some other 20th century thinkers who, yeah, like 
if if there's no transcendence, then all that morality is is some sort of conditioning from your childhood, even maybe before your existence evolutionarily, or just in terms of sociocultural stuff. The Marxist explanation that says uh, you believe this because you belong to a certain class or whatever, and you can always give that kind of explanation for any moral belief. You believe this because X, because you grew up here, because your parents told you this, because you're this part of religion. On the flip side, Lewis says, none of us can live that way. It's impossible to live that way consistently because we all think that when we make moral claims, we make claims that go beyond ourselves. We're not just talking about flavors of ice cream. We're not just saying, this is the sort of thing that I think I should do, but you do your own thing. Um, let me actually quote the, the exact passage he gives. He says, when, when naturalists talk about morality, sometimes they forget that that is their glory. They hold a philosophy which excludes humanity, but they remain human. At the sight of injustice, they throw all their naturalism to the winds and speak like men and like men of genius. They know far better than they think they know. But at other times, I suspect they're trusting in a supposed way of escape from their difficulty. So his response is that there's no way that anyone can live consistently in that kind of relativistic notion that when it, when push comes to shove and you see injustice or you're the receiver of injustice, you will cry out. Like you, you're not just going to fall back on some sociological explanation of, well, morality is just one class enforcing this other set of beliefs on another class, or it's just some evolutionary spinoff. Like deep down, we know morality is built into the fiber of the universe. And anyone who can reason at all can access these moral truths. This is Lewis's claim that to reason is to access the obvious moral truths. Do not murder, do not rape, do not do all these things. So it's a very convoluted way of saying, since that explanation is wrong, there has to be transcendence. There has to be something that our moral claims and beliefs are latching onto and are picking up in the world uh, in order for us to live consistent human lives. That part of what it is to be human is to live and believe that injustice is actually a thing. And these are not just our beliefs or our emotions or things like that. Well, he talks about how um, whenever you say, I want to do A, but I ought to do B. Mm -hmm. right? He says, for when men say I ought, they certainly think that they're saying something and something true about the nature of the proposed action and not merely about their own feelings. Mm -hmm. So that's that's in uh, chapter five of Further Difficulty in Naturalism. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> like you were saying, I mean, one, is it a, does it practically make sense? Can you actually practically live that way? Well, you can't, right? I mean, mm -hmm. even the fact that we have a conscience, it would, why does it, if a conscience, if all it is is just a response to conditioning mm -hmm. or just a biochemical response to a certain thought, it doesn't hold any moral weight, hmm. right? And he says, uh, all moral judgments would be statements about the speaker's feelings mistaken by him for statements about something else which does not exist. Mm -hmm. And um, now that, that that sounds like a very strong argument. Uh, would you say that that's a sound argument that Lewis is making? That it requires transcendence or? Yeah, that moral, that moral, that to have genuine morality, you need to have some uh, something transcended. This is, so I'm, I'm still not sure what the argument exactly is. Okay. So Lewis tells us again, like there are these two options and we reject one. So therefore, it has rejecting to be one would be naturalism. rejecting naturalism. Okay, but why? Again, why is there no third option? Why can't there be a naturalist 
and there also be these true moral facts. So you're saying that Lewis never considers that third option. So it seems like Lewis is going either there's nothing beyond the material world mm-hmm. and no moral moral stuff and no right. mo- moral and if you if there's nothing beyond the moral world you can't account for morality. Right. If there's nothing beyond the material world you can't account for morality. Right. Because ideas like good and just and love are non-physical entities or they're, they're, they're not, they would have no real existence because they don't have any physical existence. So they're not real things in, in a purely materialistic world. That would also apply to like numbers. And so this is where you get into okay. like, can the number two exist if all that exists is nature? Hmm. Like can the laws of logic exist? Right. Cause so, even, even when you write the number two, that's just a symbol for an abstract a concept concept. Right. right. Whoa. So yeah, I, again, like this is, it, it's an argument that Christians historically have made. And I, I wouldn't say it's an argument so much as they're trying to like highlight something interesting. Like, Hey, look, the world has morality. Morality seems weird if you try to fit into a naturalistic picture, therefore God, right? But it's never like fleshed out explicitly how to get from there to that conclusion. It's just sort of like, Hey, look, there's this interesting feature of the world that seems weird so therefore we invoke. So you can't have this explain. argument, you know, you talk to your friend and go, morality requires something beyond nature. And maybe you get it and he goes, hey, it's a good point. And you go, that's why God exists. You're right. like, well, there are there, in between God exists because there's morality and no, no God means no morality. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's this middle thing that it could be? I'm just saying that Lewis hasn't, again, hasn't explained all of the possible options that the naturalist can go to. I think, so I think, I think it's unfair and uncharitable. You think there's a way for a naturalist to account for morality while holding to naturalism? I think it's possible. Yeah. What would that be? In a similar way to how you don't have to reject the number two or the number seven or the law of. So, but they would say that there are certain things that are non-physical entities. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're they would cease to be naturalists. Well, so I guess I guess it depends on what you mean by naturalist. Yeah, uh, I think what Lew- what do you think Lewis means by naturalist? I don't think Lewis is thinking that like specifically and technically. I think okay. he's sort of just like here. There's a worldview that seems to be really dominant in our time, and it's emphasizing nature and rejecting supernaturalism. But at least in in contemporary philosophy and a lot of academic literature, naturalism doesn't mean that like the number two is a supernatural entity. Right? It could just be that these, these concepts are things that are, by definition, they just have to exist, but it doesn't require that they be like concrete objects. Or, or, or that behind it is a personal God. That, that, is, that is, I mean, that's the Christian answer. Yeah, right. But you don't necessarily, that does, there could be other options that you could argue for without buying even, even a, not even just a Christian God, but just a God in general doesn't have to, a personal God doesn't have to be behind it for morality yeah. to be. I'm, I'm just questioning like the steps from Lewis's evidence to Lewis's conclusion that God exists. I'm just saying like, let's be a little more careful, a little bit more methodical and linear to show how we get to that conclusion. And Lewis, again, is being a little bit quick and fast with his language, but I think he's, he's highlighting something interesting that's worth talking about, that Christianity seems to make a really it provides a really good explanation for a lot of what we see in morality that seems more difficult to account for if God doesn't exist. But the steps to get to the conclusion, therefore God exists, is a little bit tenuous. He doesn't really give us those 
clearly. How would you improve upon his argument? Um, I mean, he does in mere Christianity give an actual argument, which you might recall, if there are moral laws, then there must be a moral lawgiver. And so that's like a more concrete way of stating the argument. But again, that that assumption needs to be argued for, that you can't have laws without a lawgiver. Do you think that's valid to say that if we have moral laws, that implies we have a lawgiver? Maybe. But there are also laws that seemingly exist without lawgivers, maybe. Laws of logic, laws of mathematics. So that wouldn't be an improvement on his argument by adding that. It's at least making it more clear. It's telling us, like, here are the premises. Here's how I'm getting from my assumption to my conclusion. Um, Would your solution then just don't use that argument? I I would avoid it. I don't use it. You know that I'm, like, not a fan of arguing for the existence of God. But... It's, it's, it's definitely exists. interesting. <laughs> yes, you, you don't believe anything unless you have an argument for it. What do you think about when he says this? There is no escape along those lines. If we are to continue... Uh, I was just going to quote that, yeah. Well, actually, mm-hmm. I like the sense before. He says, The naturalist must not destroy all my reverence for conscience on Monday mm-hmm. and expect to find me still venerating it on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. There is no escape along those lines. If we are to continue to make moral judgments... And whatever we say, we shall in fact continue. Then we must believe that the conscience of man is not a product of nature. It can be valid only if it is an offshoot of some absolute moral wisdom. A moral wisdom which exists absolutely on its own and is not a product of non-moral, non-rational nature. What do you think about that, Paul? I think it's... It sounds nice. Translated to English. I was just going to ask you to do that. (laughs) What is he trying to say here? What's what's the argument he's giving us? Well, it seems to say that we make moral judgments, right? What Mm -hmm. we should and what we shouldn't do. Uh, And if those are real, accurate judgments, like if we choose to do the good thing, and Mm -hmm. it's not just that's how we're conditioned, but it's objectively, truly good that we do that, then the conscience that directs us can't be simply from nature. It has to be a reflection of a higher reasoning. It has to be a reflection of somebody who also makes moral judgments, namely God. So I think that that he's trying to root the fact that when we start to say, I I should do this and not this, we're revealing we have a mechanism that can determine that. Mm -hmm. But it can only determine that if that actually has value, if there actually are things that are objectively good, whether they were human beings or not, whether whether you ever existed or not, it would still be good. And it would still be bad whether you exist or not. And that can only hold if there is a mind uh, th- that exists, what he says, on its own. And well, is in itself not a pro- product of nature. Those sound like two separate arguments that you stated. Okay. One uh, is... Lewis stated. Lewis. I don't, don't blame this on me, okay? <laughs> That's why I wanted you to, to try to put in your own words. It seems like you can you can frame this as an argument from conscience, or you can frame it as an argument from morality. So there's one argument where you could say, how do we know that our conscience is reliable? Well, it's because God has ensured that it will be reliable. That doesn't mean that God makes morality. God's role in morality is just keeping our mechanism, our moral compass reliable. That's one argument. Right. Another argument is to say, forget about the moral compass. God is the one who's giving us these moral laws. And sure, you could say he also like makes the compass reliable. But the the argument that he gives in mere Christianity about the moral laws is a different argument from one about conscience. It's about where do these laws come from? Do you think he's wrong to, or or it's it's confusing to mix the arguments together? 
I'm saying in, right here, it's it's a little bit confusing. Like he he's, he seems to be making both kinds of claims, but not separating them out neatly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there might be something to say. Like Romans two talks about God giving um, the law to the hearts hearts on the Gentiles, and right. and there's there's this theme in Scripture of God giving humanity an ability to reason to right and wrong, right. and that that is. That's one instance, maybe, of what it means to be in the image of God. Sure, that that, that, that is fine. a good point because in Romans two, it does imply that there are Gentiles, there are people who don't have the Old Testament scriptures, mm-hmm. but they still have a sense of what the Ten Commandments essentially means. Right. They don't need a written revelation; it's mm-hmm. written on their hearts. And so, our the fact that we have a conscience condemns us. One, we mm-hmm. don't live up to our own standards, but two, it, it reveals that that. It, reveal, it reveals God's, it's, it's God's fingerprint on mm-hmm. the human race sure. and on the world. The fact that we have a conscience, that it's more than just a biological reaction to certain stimuli or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. Right. No, we're actually making real judgments about real things. And we can be wrong. Mm-hmm. You can be wrong in what you do and what you believe and what you say and what, how you act. And I think a lot of what Lewis does is... And maybe we're too harsh on him because he's not writing to academics. He's writing to to, to the common folks, sure. the lay people, right? Mm-hmm. The peasants of the world. But um, <laughs> I'm definitely getting canceled for that. You are. But I think there is some value to just say, look, are these foolproof arguments? No, they're not. But in most of life, when we're talking to non-Christians or we're, we're even dealing with our own doubts, we're not really looking for slam dunk foolproof bulletproof arguments. Mm-hmm. We're looking for, I, I've heard it, 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 it be said, like you want to put pebbles in people's shoes. Yeah. Like it, it sort of just bothers them. When you start to ask them about morality, maybe you could think of a way where you could not have a personal God and yet still have objective morality. But the person you're talking to is probably just like, huh, you know, maybe there's another way, but you really kind of destabilized me there. You, you mm-hmm. made me think you, you, you don't have to have slam dunk arguments. You can just sort of poke people a little mm-hmm. bit and prod them in different directions. So we don't need to, you know, and this is the genius of Lewis where he knows he's talking to a person too. It's it's never a slam dunk argument. I don't even know if there are slam dunk arguments for, so. for, for God and all these things. But again, we're not converted by, you know, solving a syllogism. Mm-hmm. We are converted by encountering... A syllogism. A syllogism, right. <laughs> encountering Christ, encountering him in his word and the ways that he manifests himself to us. Mm. And I think Lewis gets that and he goes, I'm just I'm just messing with one piece of the puzzle. I'm just messing with one little cog and a giant, you know, framework of 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 ways that in which we come to belief. So I don't need to I don't need to have a slam dunk argument to know that this could still affect somebody and and sort of push them more towards belief. I think that's very charitable. I think he is actually trying to do the slam dunk. That's really? the way I read the first four or five chapters. Maybe he thinks he's slam dunking. I think so. I mean, but I, I think we could still use his arguments. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, yeah, yeah. and go, yeah, look, you could probably refute this in some way. And maybe if we're mm-hmm. writing academic papers, that would matter. Mm-hmm. But in general conversation, or you're helping somebody kind of work through Christianity, I think it... It, at the very least, it could make people go, huh, Christianity's not crazy. That's, yes. I, I think it makes it plausible. That. Right. Even It doesn't have to make Christianity inevitably, right. inevitable or, mm-hmm. or whatever, undeniable. Yeah. But it, I think maybe the modest goal of, 
apologetics or defending the faith or mm -hmm. whatever is to make just Christianity compelling, make it compelling, yeah. make it plausible. And mm -hmm. maybe even more than that, make it something beautiful right. that you wish was true. Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, okay. So you think he's actually though trying to go for the slam dunk. He's going for the I, jugular. I do. I mean the first, and he finishes chapter five by saying like, I've done my ground setting. I've shown that naturalism is just not a live option because of those two things, because of human reasoning and morality. And those are the things that two that like sink the ship of naturalism. So he thinks that naturalism is not a live option because of those things. And now I think I think that conclusion is too strong. Um, I think for our purposes, practically as Christians, we can look at certain things and say, like you mentioned earlier, they do fit nicely into the Christian story. And I think when we look at human dignity, for example, that fits in really well with the Christian story. How do you explain the fact that every single human being, regardless of ability to function, race, color, creed, is intrinsically valuable, is valuable in and of themselves without any other contribution? Like that picture doesn't sound super counterintuitive to our 21st century years, although it does when we talk about abortion, for example, hmm. we've got human beings that lack some functions and so we don't recognize them as valuable. But historically, we've done this to lots of people groups. We've done this to blacks and we've done this to Africans and we did this to Jews. And we say, these people lack this function or this characteristic and so they're, they're not valuable. So Christianity comes along and says, no, just by virtue of inhabiting the human essence you are valuable beyond price. And that, that category is very difficult to slot and understand and explain if nature is all that there is. And you, you kind of hate when people, they, they well-meaningly, they'll, they'll kind of make the pro-life argument of like, man, that kid could have been the next doctor who solves yeah, cancer. And it's like, well, what if he wasn't? What if he had Down syndrome? Right. Is he now worthless? Right, yeah. And, you know, and, and so, there is that we're playing into their hands by by doing that right. exact sort of utilitarian right. thinking. Yeah. yeah, it's like people people's value is not based upon what they do right. or their output, mm -hmm. which itself is a countercultural claim. Absolutely, right. Yeah. But mm -hmm. people just are valuable, mm -hmm. infinitely valuable. Yeah, right. You can't two people is not worth more than one person. Right, right. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't play games like that. Right. And uh, again, but think about like we went back at the beginning of our conversation. You only get at that deep reflection on human nature if you ha ask those philosophical questions. Mm -hmm. If you if you think deeply about it, if you just go about your life, you're going to numb yourself to those deeper questions, and then it's very easy to just look at people in a very utilitarian way. Right. Right. These things require reflection. We have to examine our lives. Mm -hmm. Right. We have to examine what it means to be a human, what it means to be a person, what it means to be made in the image of God, because that's the infrastructure of how we determine all other things, how we value other things. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too is like, we get carried away. Right. It's very easy to get carried away with materialism and wealth and, and you know, violence and all these things. And without reflection on morality, without deep thinking, we don't have anything to check ourselves, mm -hmm. to check our impulses and to build like a virtuous society. Right. And I, what do you, what do you, people who are atheists or naturalists, how do they account for human dignity? Do, do they, are they just being inconsistent by saying all humans have dignity? I don't know if they're being inconsistent. I mean, they might be. Um, I think they don't have the same 
depth and riches of intellectual resources that the Christian does. Because the Christian can say, look, God made humans in his image. God became human and forever wedded himself to humanity by taking on flesh and becoming incarnate. And so Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God now for eternity, bearing his humanity and his wounds and forever dignifying and giving value to the human race. And that is just incredible. Like that, more than anything else you can conceive of as an explanation for the source of value of humanity, it's literally God made us to be like him in some significant way, and then God became one of us to live with us, to redeem us and to create us for friendship with him. Like that is the human end and human goal. It's not just to, to populate and to procreate and to work, but it is, it is friendship with God. It is union with God. And so that, that privilege is one that we talked about Athanasius a long time ago, but it gives the story of the king who leaves his castle and comes to live in a village and glorifies the whole village as a result. That is the story of the incarnation. That is God coming to the world, to humanity, and becoming like us, becoming one of us. And as a result of that process, dignifying the entire race, the entire species through doing that. And so when you look at when you look at the person who is crippled, deaf, lame, on the verge of death, starving, like horrible to look at, that human being is in the image of God. And God has forever wedded himself to humanity that that individual is, is participating in. That is an incredibly rich explanation for the value of human beings. And the atheists can say, sure, we're all the same thing. We all share the same DNA. We're all rational. We have capacities. And that might be a, a good enough explanation for a UN convention, right? Why, why do we not practice these horrible atrocities? Why do we not torture? But when you want to really explain the value of humanity... Christianity, just bar none, gives a much richer explanation. That's a good way to put it. And you 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 lose that historical lineage of reflection. And like you said, the resources. Mm -hmm. We do have a lot of resources to account for these things. And not just in a sort of mechanical way, but a powerful, compelling way. Right. I mean, when you even just said that, it's like God put on human flesh. God assumed the human nature. Mm -hmm. That gives so much dignity to what it means to be a human. Right. That God doesn't view us as something to be tossed aside. Right. But rather, we are the objects of his love, and, mm -hmm. he, and he shows that in concrete ways by the incarnation. Right. And that's that's that'll preach. Yeah. That, that'll, that, preach. that'll preach. <laughs> so we're going to keep going uh, in, the, in the next few episodes, uh, tracing Lewis's arguments. But we just wanted to wrap up this first little part talking about his ideas of morality, and, and, and even some of the weaknesses in his approach. But uh, the book starts to get a little deeper into some uh, different issues, especially talking about science and, mm -hmm. and how that affects things and all this stuff. So uh, stay tuned for that next episode. But that's all for today. See you guys next week.